HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, and today we're not talking about food. We're talking actually about buildings. Um, my guest is Tom Thomas Fox, Tom Fox, as I call him. Um, Tom uh, is a writer who writes on far-ranging interests, among them sustainability and resilience. We've already decided that we're going to find a new word for sustainability, by the way. Um, he is an attorney and a research editor at Reader's Digest. Fox is the author of Green Town USA and Urban Farming, Sustainable City Living in Your Backyard, in Your Community, and in the World. His work has been published in the Washington Post, The Wine Enthusiast, and elsewhere, and he tweets at Farmer-esque. That's Farmer, like E-S-Q, as in Esquire. So um, the book that we're going to talk about today is Green Town USA, and the subtitle for that book is The Handbook for American... America's Sustainable Future. And um, Tom, this is the story of a town, much like Moore, Oklahoma, just recently um, in Kansas that was wiped out by a tornado. It was quite a small town. So give us a little bit of background and tell us why you wrote the book. Sure. Um, Well, as you said, Greensburg is a pretty small city. It had about 1,500 people at the time. It's in south-central Kansas, roughly halfway between Wichita and Dodge City. And um, up until 2007, it was known for just a few things regionally. Um, It had a very interesting settler history. It had some local attractions that were quite interesting. uh, And it was the seat of Kiowa County. Um, But then in May 2007, everything changed um, when it became known worldwide for two things. The first was being positively devastated by an EF5 tornado. I mean, which... An EF5 is is even stronger than the one that hit Moore, because when I looked at the Moore, Oklahoma coverage, um, and that's the tornado that just wiped out that town of 40,000 mm-hmm. recently, um, that was only categorized as an EF4. So this one was an even higher force. Yeah, um, the EF5s are the highest you can get, and that means that it has winds of over 205 miles per hour. So, I mean, it's a monster. 
And um, the one that hit Greensburg not only hit it directly, um, but it was over a mile and a half wide. Um, so it was actually larger than the town itself. And um, so it, it just completely devastated the town. About 95% of the built structures were destroyed. Um, and what the, you know, that was sort of the first piece of the, the worldwide news. And the second was that the community committed not only to rebuilding, but to rebuilding as the greenest small city in rural America. And I think that's a really interesting decision because um, the greening of, of or, or green lifestyles, uh, sustainable choices, this is not what you would associate with a small town in Tornado Alley, Kansas, um, where I, I would venture to guess that most of the residents vote Republican. Um, and, <laughs> and it's got a very uh, long rural agricultural history to it. And those are not um, cultural aspects that generally lend themselves to uh, sort of forward-thinking, futuristic types of, of philosophies about how to live. So how did they get to that place where they were willing to address these, instead of going back to what they knew and, and doing what they've always done in the past, why did they decide that this would be a better way to go forward? Well, first, you're absolutely right. This is sort of uh, the kind of uh, thing that would have probably, uh, you know, just had a knee-jerk bad reaction to the typical Greensburger um, at the time. Um, you know, it would be associated with tree huggers. Absolutely. Um, PETA. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, Humane society. Oh, my God. Ultimately suspect. <laughs> absolutely. Very bad people. And, you know, even here, um, there were, you know, multiple reactions, which is sort of like green is a paint color. You know, right. that's not something we do. Um, but it really started with um, a few of the, the town leaders deciding that they were going to rebuild, not just rebuild, but rebuild better. And when they came to sort of think about what better might mean, um, it probably started with some energy efficiency, um, you know, making things uh, a little more efficient that way. Um, but then Governor Sibelius really sort of let the cat out of the bag and said, you know, called it green. Um, and, uh, and so th they had to sort of commit to that and they ended up having a big ally, uh, in Daniel Wallach of Greensburg Greentown, which was a nonprofit, uh, formed just after the tornado. Right. And he was really able to speak to the people and sort of convince them that this wasn't some sort of plot foisted upon them, mm -hmm. but this was really a return to the, to the heritage of their ancestors who were, you know, much more thrifty and, and knew all the basic things. Um, you know, for example, to build in an east-west orientation so that you maximize sunlight. Right. I mean, there were actually a lot of initiatives like that that I thought were interesting because the town itself was built on a north-south axis, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Which did not promote uh, harnessing the sun's power or conversely, you know, sheltering from the sun's power. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing that really interested me was um, he helped bring about the uh, the master plan, Yes. that they developed. Let's talk a little bit about that because that got input from FEMA. It got a lot of support from FEMA and that's not something I normally associate with FEMA. I associate FEMA with giving you some trailers and some bank cards and saying bye-bye. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, well, I mean, I think part of the, the success of Greensburg post-tornado um, probably had a lot to do with the fact that it was so close to Hurricane Katrina. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh -huh. the federal government was falling over itself um, you know, trying to help out. Um, but apparently FEMA has this sort of 12-week uh, long-term recovery process planning um, system that they employ in any community that's struck like this. Um, and so they had a big hand in that, and they helped sort of organize all the different parties. You know, they, so you'd have people from the healthcare sector, people from the business sector, the school sector. Um, 
And they really tried to engage everyone in this preliminary planning process. And the sort of upshot of that, one of them, was to create this master plan. Um, it was it, called the Sustainable Comprehensive Master Plan. Oh, I love yes. that. <laughs> I love that it had this like incredible name to it. Yeah, it created problems with me writing, you know, do I use an acronym or do yeah. I use this? <laughs> I can imagine. I you had know. a lot of acronyms to manage there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, between all the building materials and all the different plans. Absolutely. It was tough. Um, so anyway, you know, many communities have uh, 15 or 20 year plans that sort of guide development. And, you know, they can measure themselves against it um, going forward. Greensburg did not. Um, so they couldn't just appeal to you know the current uh, master plan at the time of the tornado. They really had to create one from scratch. And so uh, what happened was um, the state um, engaged um, an architectural firm known for sustainable building, known as BNIM, um, to sort of guide the process. And so there was sort of a seven-person team uh, composed of Greensburg people um, who were sort of the action team behind it. Mm-hmm. BNIM was leading it. Um, FEMA and lots of state and federal government um, organizations were also participating, as did the city government and Greensburg Greentown. Um, and so together, you know, they really all sort of hashed out what they thought Greensburg could become and really made a big effort to involve the community. Um, so before the planning process, uh, they really solicited what the public wanted, what they thought, what, what did Greensburg mean? Um, and then twice during the process, they had um, community meetings involving over 300 people each time, and which in a community of 1,500 people is pretty right. impressive. Right, um, that's most of the adult population. Yeah, probably. And, <laughs> and so uh, you know they engaged in this process, and um, the the sustainable comprehensive master plan was the result, and that really has been guiding it. Amazing, and so. Um, this guy, Daniel Wallach, tell me a little bit more about him, because he writes the foreword to the book, mm-hmm. and he was obviously a big, um, I guess, spokesperson for the plan, right? I mean, wasn't he the one who kind of really had the job of selling it to the community at large? Absolutely. And I love that he went back to the idea, not just thrifty, but common sense. I mean, mm-hmm. in a lot of the, because you have a lot of boxes with what he said, mm-hmm. or, you know, with his his pitch and it was really about you know well guys you know your ancestors when the settlers came out here they weren't exactly you know building uh you know castles with lots of windows and stuff i mean it was you know they were solders there's no trees here there's no you know like how do we capture some of that spirit and that seemed to be really the thing that sold it to the community right absolutely um, so, you know, you know, during this uh, rebuilding process, there were lots of people who sort of helicoptered in, you know, some of them well-intentioned, right. some of them not. Um, but Daniel, um, who had actually come from Colorado, where he had founded a nonprofit association and had transplanted to Kansas, he turned out to be just sort of the best salesman within town. And a right. lot of that was... Was he living in Greensburg when this happened? No, he was living about um, an hour away. Uh-huh. Um, and he and his wife, Catherine Hart, uh, were watching the, the news that night. Everyone in the area was, because there was the possibility of a tornado. Um, and then, you know, they heard that it struck. And shortly thereafter, I think they went out driving to go see if they could see what was going on in Greensburg. And they, they passed um, the, the ruins of a uh, patrolman car of uh, somebody from nice. outside of Greensburg, but who had been trying to warn people who right. were not within siren distance that it was coming. Um, and so the experience of seeing the city, which looked like a bomb, completely destroyed it, and you know, seeing this patrolman um, sort of inspired them to bring their expertise to help the community figure out what it meant to be green and how to make it happen. Very interesting. Now, this town was about 150 years old, is that right? 
Yeah, I think it was... It was an early homesteading settler town in Kansas. And so the architecture was, you describe it as a lot of Victorian houses, as well as a sort of mix of more modern stuff. But obviously the town hadn't changed a whole lot. I was amazed that it hadn't been hit by tornadoes before, given that it is in that location of what they call Tornado Alley. Right, right. I mean, I think the, the chance of any one community getting hit in a year is probably pretty pretty slim. Um, I think there may have been a tornado in the area that actually did hit in the 20s, um, mm-hmm. but certainly not um, after that. And, you know, so they had houses that would be like houses in most of the United States, sort of stick frame construction. Right. Um, their main, uh, main drag had some brick buildings. Um, but, you know, there's nothing really built to resist tornadoes. Right. Um, and, and really, you know, pretty much everything got destroyed except for two historic buildings and the co-op, which is this tremendous uh, grain silo built of concrete. And we're going to talk about that because I thought that was really interesting. The, the, the co-op, and you have a photo of it in the book, is an enormous rounded structure. It looks like a silo, right? Mm-hmm. It yep. is a silo, essentially. Exactly. And apparently... Uh, later on, as the the plan unfolded to build in a more sustainable way, I mean, actually, one thing I was curious about during the book was I didn't read a lot of stuff that was specifically to withstand tornado, except for that one house that's built with the the sort of dome wings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I forget whose house that was. The but, Eller family, But yeah. they started to realize, some of the people started to realize that one way to protect their homes was to build rounded structures or rounded corners. Mm-hmm. I was surprised that more people didn't follow that model since that seems to be something that's, you know, cyclone friendly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it is a little surprising. Um, you know, there were, uh, the Eller family is sort of ambitious in making that. Um, Greensburg Greentown's headquarters is in a house called the Silo Eco Home. And uh-huh. what it is is basically a short silo built just like an, a silo would be with uh, poured concrete walls. Um, and just to sort of demonstrate uh, to the public how you know resilient this sort of shape and construction method is, they dropped a car from like 60 feet up onto the roof twice um and it you know doesn't do anything right um but um yeah i I think um a lot of the houses um were not rebuilt particularly strong some of them might have been built with two by sixes instead of two by fours yes um which makes them a bit stronger and allows for about 50 percent more insulation um and certainly a lot of the public buildings um, were built with these insulated concrete forms, which are very strong. So they could probably withstand a tornado like this. A five. Yeah, a five. yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that they have been tested, uh, you know, because... You can't really test for 205 <laughs> yeah, hour wins. I mean, that's got to be a tough test. I wouldn't want to be in that test. No. No. Um, Joe, why don't we take a quick break, um, and we'll come right back with Tom Fox, author of Greentown, USA. Um, we're talking about sustainable building practices and something that we're all going to have to think more about as climate change uh, continues to evolve and change our planet. We'll be right back with What Doesn't Kill You. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world, highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com.
This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insight, with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. Uh, this is the Heritage Radio Network, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's in the back of, uh, in Bushwick, Brooklyn, New York, at 261 Moore Street. Brunch is being served. And my guest today is in the studio, which is kind of unusual for me these days. I've been doing a lot of phoners. Um, but my guest is Tom Fox. Tom is the author of um, Greentown, USA, and it's a handbook. It literally is a handbook for how to build a more sustainable um, sustainable dwellings and infrastructure in communities. And uh, I suspect that we're going to be, especially in that part of the world, in uh, Kansas and, and what they call Tornado Alley, they're going to be needing more and more of those tricks of the trade. Um, especially since we see more of these major, I mean, we've had jobs, I mean, since that tornado in 2007, which was kind of the beginning of these tremendous wind events in the Midwest. I mean, do you, have you been keeping track of how many more there have been? There's been Joplin. Yeah, there's Joplin. And there's been a series of smaller tornadoes that have done less damage, but still been pretty devastating. Am I right in that? Absolutely. I mean, I think there have been 10 uh, EF5 ones. Good Um, Lord. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, they they don't always, they're not always as large in, in diameter. They don't always hit an entire part of a city, they might just, right. you know, plow down a few blocks. Right. Um, you know, um, which I think was the case in more, you know, a big part of the city was affected, but not all of the city. Right. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, I don't, I think many of these communities are not really prepared, um, to face that sort of event, but you know, at the same time, people like us here on the coast aren't really capable of dealing with floods. Hurricanes. Yeah. Right. Um, but it is interesting to think because, I mean, as people begin to construct new buildings, as you know, development continues to grow out in the Midwest, which I'm sure it will, um, there's all these new technologies, and, and um, some people are using them, like in Greentown, yes. um, but some people are not. So can you give us some idea of what are some of the new building materials that were employed in Greensburg to you know, make their houses stronger and especially more eco-friendly? Sure. Um, Two of the the most popular um, technologies are insulated concrete forms, which are also called ICFs, and structural insulated panels, which are SIPs. And so the insulated concrete form is basically, if if you can imagine, a uh, a cinder block. um, But instead of being made out of concrete, it's made out of foam um, on either side. And they can be assembled sort of like Legos. Uh um, And you can build a whole wall with them. And when the wall is complete, it actually has this empty central um, space where concrete can be poured in. And so um, that's what they do is they, they just frame out the walls. In one case, one of these buildings uh, was framed out in less than 20 days. I know. I was going to say that the construction time is really reduced using these uh, pre-made forms, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, they just pour in concrete. It stays in place. And then you have a wall that's insulated on both sides. Um, it's pretty much impermeable to air and water. Um, and it's, it's just very well insulated, very strong. And um, I think, you know, probably the reason that has caught on so much in town is, you know, uh, thought of another tornado. Right. What about other towns in, in that whole area, in Oklahoma, Kansas, Missouri, you know? Do, are they all, are, are more and more companies, construction companies, offering that for sale? Do you, I mean, do you follow, like, a big uptick in the, should we be buying stock? In, <laughs> well, um, <laughs> That's what I really want to know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I tried to take a quick look. I don't know that the, the sales have increased so much, but it also corresponded with um, sort of a great decrease in the housing market. So it's not a great time that's to true. consider it. Right. Um, but, you know, in addition to the insulated concrete forms, there are these uh, things called structural insulated panels. Now, what they are is basically um, 
imagine sort of like a, a big frame, like maybe like four by eight feet. Mm-hmm. Um, and right in the center is a big uh, slab of foam. And then it's sandwiched in by two sort of pieces of plywood. Um, and so um, structures can also be built with those. And um, again, very, very quickly. Um, and they can even be loaded um, onto the truck from the factory such that you unload them in order and just slap them together. And because they, they have um, two beams together, when they're, you know, two panels together when they're put side by side, right. it's actually much stronger than regular construction. And so that's another one they've used, and I think one that probably has a lot of promise. And that and that is green because because it's already insulated, or why why is that particularly quote unquote green or, or sustainable? Sure, they're um, they're both considered green, pretty green, uh, because they're excellently insulated. So I mean, they reduce uh, energy use in a house like easily forty percent, um, and. Um, you know, they can last a very long time. They're very strong. Right. There is some question of uh, the use of the foam. That's uh-huh. one issue because that, it's... That certainly crossed my mind. <laughs> yeah, based on hydrocarbons. <laughs> um, but it, at least in the case of structural ins- insulated panels, uh, they can use recycled um, foam. It's basically, uh, it's sort of like styrofoam. Right. Um, and so, w- which is generally not recycled. Definitely so it's a, not. Use, a use for that that's sort of productive. Um and then the other thing is, certainly with the ICFs, is um, concrete because, con- you know, the glue of concrete is cement, and cement is incredibly carbon intensive. So a pound to produce a, um, a pound of cement produces about a pound of carbon dioxide. Wow. Um, so, you know, there is some question that it's a cost-benefit analysis, but certainly um, lead buildings uh, can be made with either of those. You can get points for using them. Uh-huh. So. Um, yeah, these buildings, some of these buildings were lead platinum. Yes. Now, I, I have friends in the building community who would suggest that the whole lead thing is, is really not quite on the right track. But, <laughs> but that's another discussion. I mean, so what you're saying is that people could save twenty or f- more than f- up to 40% or more of energy costs in terms of heat exchange, um, whether it's cooling or heating in the winter, um, because they build with these products. That's what makes their house energy efficient. It's not the product itself. It's the actual benefit of the product. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a tremendous insulator. And you'd also have to, you know, make sure that the house is fairly sealed. Um, yeah, you talked about the thermal envelope. Yeah, the thermal envelope. Yeah. Tell me about the thermal envelope. Um, that's basically the, all of the components of a house that, that keep air in or out. So, right. you know, the doors, the windows. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you want a tight thermal envelope. And these... Two uh, technologies create incredibly tight thermal envelopes. Um, but also, going to what your, your friend said about lead, um, I don't know that that's sort of the, the way to go either. You know, another thing that was used here in Greensburg were the advanced energy design guides, uh, which were sort of promoted by the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, um, which are, are much simpler guides that, um, you know, for, for building a more traditional, let's say, um, you know, two by six house. And, um, Achieving through that, you know, probably 25% or greater um, energy savings, um, but only just for a few thousand dollars more. So, um, you know... Whereas uh, these other products that you're talking about, the SIPs and the ICFs, are more expensive than that. They are more... Substantially more expensive. It it varies a lot. It depends, you know, for example, if you have the materials within, you know, 100 miles of the site Mm -hmm. and... um, and, you know, you could recoup the costs very quickly in energy sure. for them. 40% savings is pretty substantial. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I think in the, many of the new homes in Greensburg um, follow the AEDG, 
guidelines rather than lead, mm -hmm. um, and they have 40% savings in energy. Mm -hmm. um, so it can certainly be done using, you know, less flashy uh, criteria. <laughs> so how did these people, I mean, did they get FEMA money to pay those extra costs? I mean, when people had to re, you know, rebuild their homes like the Ellers, as you described, or mm -hmm. a couple of the other families that built really sort of showcase homes, mm -hmm. um, how were they financed? Did they, were they willing to pay the extra cost because they saw the benefit at the end of it, or were they given some subsidies? And would, would for instance, does government offer subsidies for that kind of thing? Well, um, about 75% of the homeowners received insurance payments, but the insur insurance payments were about $50,000, which really wasn't enough to build a new home. So I think um, the people who did build new homes were often people who wanted to stay, who had money, were willing to right. put in a substantial amount themselves. But um, sort of one of the other interesting things I found about the town, and sort of a lesson for another community, is just how much aid poured in. Um, so, for example... Um, the school building, which is gorgeous, and it's mm -hmm. lead platinum, um, it's $55 million. Wow. Um, 75% of that cost was insurance because two other schools were totaled. Um, right. And FEMA, in that case, put up a lot of money. And the government, um, uh, state, local um, government, um, covered the rest. Also had to, yeah, yeah, right. They would have to kick in because it's a state institution or public institution. And yeah. so, yeah, with a lot of the public buildings, they got mm -hmm. a combination of insurance mm -hmm. and uh, funds from government without the town having to take on a huge burden. Um, yeah. So would you say that, that these, I mean, first of all, the town of Greensburg has become a little bit of an eco-tourist center. Am I right in that? You are right. I think it has not become as much as, <laughs> of as a little mecca liked. as they would have liked. Yeah. Um, but um, I well, think we're going to do our best right now to make <laughs> yes, that happen. Yes, absolutely. Go there. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, but, but it has. And um, certainly it's been a place that people from other communities where there have been tragedies go to. Uh -huh. um, and people from Greensburg uh, travel all around to, uh, to bring, you know, sort of like the message of um, how to rebuild after a disaster like this to so, those communities. So they have been on the site of more, in more Oklahoma, no doubt, right? Now, but my question was, like, you, you know, Greensburg, like, this is a great story, and I love it, and I loved what they did, and I thought it was terrific that the but there's only, there were only, like, 1,900 residents in the whole town. So when you talk about a, bil a bigger community like Joplin mm -hmm. or more, um, how much can you get people to do sort of the same thing, do you think? I mean, is, is, has, has Greensburg become what it hoped to become as a kind of um, bellwether or a, a leader in this field? Or are people in bigger communities just saying, oh, well, that's just like a little tiny town. They can do whatever they want. Well, I mean, it's absolutely right that, I mean, Greensburg is exceptional. I, I think partly they just acted very boldly in, in you know, saying they were going to be the greenest mm -hmm. town in America. Um, but also, I mean, I did a, just a quick calculation of the aid they got from federal and state government and some big corporations. And it turns out being something like $90,000 per resident. Um, and then if you compare that with, let's say, the $30 billion New York State asked for after Sandy, you know, that, that's less than 3000 per resident. Um, so, I mean, they got an incredible outlay of money. And I wow. think, you know, no communities going forward can expect that. And sort of one of the lessons is um, to plan. I mean, it's the least sexy thing in the world, but to plan for these <laughs> sorts of events um, because yeah. when they happen, you are not going to get that kind of help. Right. And why did they get so much money as compared to, say, f you know, 
um, disasters down the road? <laughs> was it just because our, our disaster funds were depleted? Because they were right after Katrina. Katrina was 2006, right? I think Katrina was 2006. Yeah. Uh, so they were 2007. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, certainly I think the federal government jumped in sort of with the big boots because of Katrina, making up for that. So that's unlikely. So to that was again. still under the Bush administration. Yes. I see. Okay. Um, yeah. So well, I they mean, didn't get anything like the public relations bump they probably wanted because, I mean, <laughs> God knows I didn't hear about this. I mean, right, really, right. And, and Bush went twice. Um, and, um, <laughs> he did. He, he went did. to the town did. twice. Uh, oh, nice. <laughs> one, once very shortly <laughs> afterwards. An asshole. And then, oh, and then once uh, to give the, um, I think, the graduation commencement speech. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kansas certainly... Um, kicked in a lot of money, um, and and there were a lot of corporations because they, you know, uh, said they wanted to have this whole green initiative. You know, PepsiCo gave them a lot of money for the Sunships business incubator. Um, uh-huh. They got a, a lot from uh, Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio, whose production company was interested in doing a reality series on it. Um, mm-hmm. So you know that brought in money, um, and they just sort of benefited from all of these things as well as you know thousands and thousands of volunteers doing things on site. Um, But I think, yeah, going forward, between, you know, the increasing frequency of these sorts of events, maybe not tornadoes themselves, but certainly hurricanes and flooding. Well, I don't um, know. I think tornadoes are certainly on the increase. I mean, you just had told us that there were five Category 5 or seven Category 5 hurricanes in the last few years. I mean, that's huge. There's obviously a... You never heard about that before. I mean, a big cyclone like that was not happening, like, on a regular basis the way it does seem to now. Well, I mean, I I know that in sort of current modeling, they don't know if tornadoes will increase or become more um, intense, unlike Mm -hmm. hurricanes, which will likely both increase and become more intense. Right. Um, So, you know, that could just be sort of the effect of, you know, if if you throw a bunch of darts at a wall, you can circle a cluster. Um, It might have been just sort of bad luck that these particularly strong ones um, hit communities. Because if they didn't have a community, you'd probably never hear about it. Absolutely. Right. If it goes across some farmer's, you know, 200-acre or whatever, 2,000-acre corn belt, Mm -hmm. you know, too bad. Crop insurance takes care of him, but no problems. Thanks to our farm bill. (laughs) We always got to have the crop insurance for the big farms. Um, Anyway, unfortunately, we have to close up, Tom, but uh, I want you to tell people where they can read more about your book and possibly purchase it. Um, Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. And if you have any events coming up, any readings or anything like that, you should definitely put that up, too. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I I don't have any readings coming up. Um, The book is actually officially launched uh, this Tuesday. You can find it. Oh, so I I scooped everyone on this one. You did. You (laughs) did. Um, I, and like I, I hope you reap the rewards. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> um, so it's on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. You can get it for Kindle, Nook, iPad. Oh, great! Um, yeah. So uh, this Tuesday, look for it. Absolutely. So Thomas Fox is the name of our author, and thank you so much for joining me today, Tom. And do you have a website, by the way? I do. It's farmeresque. ESQ.com. Right, but as in it's, lawyer. Yeah. Yes, but it's in a miserable shape right now. So, okay, so look don't again go in a few months. Just buy the book. Yes. Buy the book. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for my sponsor, and thank you, Joe, for engineering. Thank you for having me. This has been another episode of What Doesn't Kill You. We'll see you next week with more information about the food industry. Thanks for listening, folks. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.